the core, the, the situation is that to win an election, you need to be able to win over a majority of the citizens. You have to put forward ideas and ideals that attract people to your side to create a governing majority and they want to vote for you. And you can sit here and try to mess around with, well, we're not gonna let people vote this way and that way, but none of, or you can gerrymander. None of it will stave off what is coming your way if you can't convince a majority of citizens that, that they want your team in power. Hello and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the board of directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Welcome to See You in Court. I have with me today my co-host, Lester Tate. Lester, how are you doing today? Doing great. Doing great. Sitting uh, sitting at home by the fire, ready to talk to uh, our guest today. Awesome, and Happy New Year. You to too. You. Um, today, we are very excited to let you know we have, our, as our guest, Senator Elena Parent. Um, she's uh, a wonderful person, wonderful state senator. Uh, and friend, and we're just thrilled to have her. Elena, welcome to the show. Thanks. So thanks so much for having having me, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I want to um, tell our listeners about Senator Elena Parent uh, so they know all of her accolades. Um, Senator Elena Parent, she is a state senator for the 42nd District of Georgia and an attorney. She was elected first in 2010 in the House, and she focused her efforts in her first term on government transparency and ethics, including independent redistricting. Senator Parent also served as the executive director of Georgia Watch, the state's leading consumer rights nonprofit organization, and was then elected to the state Senate in 2014. She, focused, she has focused on improving access to early childhood education and health care, promoting common sense gun safety measures, and creating an economy that works for everyone. Senator Parent began her career as a litigation attorney at Evershed Sutherland, and she is active in her community. She is a proud graduate of the University of Virginia and the University of Virginia School of Law. Senator Parent has won numerous awards in her career, and was recently elected by her fellow Democratic senators as the Senate Democratic Caucus leader. Senator Parent traces her core beliefs, the importance of family, making the community a better place for all, and advocating for and providing help to people who are less fortunate, to her upbringing in the shadow of the U.S. Capitol, where her parents stressed the importance of faith and public service. Senator Parent is married to Briley Brizendine, and they are the parents of two sons, Brooks, 10, and Reed, 7. They are members of All Saints Episcopal Church in Atlanta. Wow, very impressive. And thanks again for joining us, uh, Senator Parent. We appreciate it. I'm excited to be here. And as to Brooks and Reed, if the listeners hear any yelling or stomping, that is Brooks and Reed, who are <laughs> virtual learners this week. <laughs> 
wonderful. And they've been doing it probably so long at this point, they understand everybody's on a computer somewhere in your home, probably. Right. I don't know that we'll have cameos, but maybe. Well, um, Elena, let's talk, first of all, I want the listeners to know we're taping this on uh, January 7th, Thursday, the day after uh, a wild day in Washington, D.C., where there was an attack on our United States Capitol, um, close to where you were raised. Uh, And as a lawmaker yourself and a lawyer, we wanted to get your thoughts on what happened yesterday, what what was going through your mind as you watched. Well, when the Capitol was breached, I was actually in the middle of sharing over Zoom uh, a Senate Democratic caucus meeting, and it was the first one that I have ever chaired um, in my new role. And one of our senators um, had the TV on in the background or saw, saw a headline and let us all know on the call, you know, wow, things have just started to completely melt down in Washington and the Capitol has been breached. And actually I was at the time at my office at the Capitol. And as I drove up, I did notice that around the Georgia Capitol, there were a number of men with long guns and gas masks and flags and um, things like that marching around our own Capitol. Um, So on the one hand, it was so incredibly shocking, terrifying, and sad to um, see individuals destroying one of the um, most sacred emblems of American democracy. It was scary that they were able to get in really in a way relatively easily. That was really scary. It felt like a precipice moment where it's sort of like, is American democracy going to be able to stand? You know, I mean, can, you know, can they, can, can they, can they do this? Will they be able to convene and certify Joe Biden's win without, um, you know, um, it being completely thrown off course by by mass murder of elected officials. I mean, really, you know, you're you're kind of you're kind of thinking that. Um, so all of that, and, and just I was so distressed um, thinking of it playing the scenes, the horror horrible scenes playing out on TV screens across the world. That this is sort of what we've come to. You know, the United States, which has led a democratic movement for decades. Um, that that this is uh, no longer can you know we be regarded as as having um, that that sort of moral moral power. I, I certainly hope we can get it back. I think we can, but that that really was was striking to me. The other reaction I really had was that sadly it it um, was really in some ways a fitting and predictable end to the Trump presidency. He had spent four years longer even sowing discord. Um, between Americans, distrust of American institutions, and it shows you the power of ceaseless lies um, from someone with a just absolutely huge bully pulpit. And, you know, then, of course, the fact that, that uh, you know, going along with that is the fact that news sources are so segregated and there are so many, you know, pro-Trump um, news organizations that, that really are not trying to break through with Americans and say, hey, you know, th- this stuff is really just flat out lies. And this, I mean, that, you know, that and worse, what happened yesterday and worse are, are 
would be, you know, um, predictable consequences of the type of reckless behavior demonstrated by the president of the United States. It was clear to me in 2016 that this was someone who was not fit to hold office. Um, I was hoped the presidency wouldn't unfold the way it did, but I think that in looking back, the, the man that presented himself on the campaign trail in 2016 is the man that governed. And all along, I thought he was incredibly dangerous for the attacks on American institutions and democracy. And he, and he was. So I want to, I want, I want to ask you um, a, a, a sort of hard question. I think it is. And uh, it's, it's one of my observations uh, yesterday. And uh, I, I think you may know, you know, I worked on Capitol Hill for about three years. I mean, it felt like I was watching somebody invade my house you know, when I watched it, uh, watched it on television, but, uh, you know, there was, a, a, and, and you serve in a legislative body and that's really sort of the focus of, of what I am because you work with people of all political stripes, people that, uh, uh, support the president, don't support the president, you know, uh, maybe, maybe even some folks who are indifferent about him, although those folks are kind of hard to find, I think, uh, mm-hmm. these days. But so one of the things that struck me yesterday was we've had, for example, uh, these sort of attacks on journalists, you know, whether it's at a rally or, or whatever. And people are like, oh, that's wrong. But I'm, I'm not a journalist. And, you know, we've had uh, attacks on, you know, other groups, you know, that have gone along and everybody's like, well, you know, that's bad. That's not what. But I, I was sort of struck yesterday that I felt like when, you know, if you're an elected official and you're in your particular legislative chamber and you have people knocking the doors down and you have to have law enforcement officers escort you out and all things it's like oh wow this really is they're coming for me and uh i i I saw some people who had been sort of lackadaisical about uh, uh others who had been similarly uh uh, assaulted or picked on or however you want to phrase that. But I wonder if uh, in, in your legislative experience, if you think that that really was a thing that because finally this is a legislature that's under attack instead of the press or the courts or somebody else. Yeah. I mean, I haven't um, talked to any of my Republican colleagues yet since um yesterday's meltdown. Um, I suspect that there are many of them that do feel slightly chastened, even if they wouldn't necessarily admit it. I mean, we've had a a whole parade of Republican elected officials in Washington and here in Georgia that have decided to utilize the fervor of Trump's base, uh, believing all these, these, you know, baseless made up stories about election fraud to try to further their own careers and really catapult themselves and try to adopt some of that so that they can sort of have an easy route into trying to have that base be loyal to them for whatever they want to pursue next, which is, you know, for in DC, some of it's the presidency here. We got folks trying to challenge the governor, the secretary of state, what have you. And, you know, none of it, like anytime ambition gets that far ahead of principle, um, or right and wrong, it is bound to at some point implode. And I think that's what we witnessed. And I was happy that yesterday, Senator Leffler ended up making a statement that she would not object to Georgia's results. And in that sense, she can leave office with a little bit more dignity 
um, than she showed. And, and, and I hope that, and in the end, you know, in DC only, you know, I only watched through Arizona last night on, on CNN, but only about half the number ended up objecting to Arizona that had, that, that had pledged to. And I think here we would see the exact same thing because they, it is, what could be more of a slap in the face and a wake up call than people coming for you and seeing just actual destruction that's really been sanctioned. Destruction that's been sanctioned essentially, not, not quite so much, but practically by the president of the United States and enabled by all of, all of those folks. If you can't have some realization that as some of these Republican electeds, that you have played a part in enabling it, that it isn't a joke. And that when you were elected, the people should be able to expect that you do better. Um, then you have no business being in elected office. And so I think that that made it through to some folks. And I hope that that will be a turning point to get our country back um, toward living in a little bit more of a shared reality. I definitely agree with you uh, that yesterday's conduct, the rioting, the attack on our capital and our democracy was foreseeable, predictable, um, and and foreseeable based on the last, you, you said the four years, and I agree with that, but just in since the election, last two months, uh, absolutely. And then when he, the president, incited the riot yesterday, um that was beyond the pale in my opinion and and so i felt like the attack on the capital by these rioters was the foreseeable consequence of that behavior by our president um i'm, I'm curious also you're, you're getting ready to start a new session uh at the capitol at the georgia state capitol does this give you any concern for your security there it does. I feel like we will be in an unstable environment, at least through the inauguration. I think that that we were all bracing for the, the U.S. Senate runoff results to take a lot longer than they did and be drawn out through, um, you know, a litigation that might seem like it has a leg. I think because the results were outside the margin of recount, hopefully that will be much more narrow. Um, I I don't know for sure that we won't be seeing um, challenges. Uh, we may, but you know, it's it's the oxygen that it will get will not be nearly what has been going on the last two months. I mean, that's like this nationwide thing. Um, Trump, who incited, as you just said, Robin, a lot of it is now getting banned from some of the platforms, which is overdue, you know, frankly. But I understand, obviously, why he went to been before. Um, and I just don't think it will have anywhere near the, the, the oxygen. I don't think it's going to have right, you know, OANN. I don't think it's going to be showing up in courtrooms to see whether David Perdue can squeak it out. It's just this Trump fever, you know, is really what, what underpinned a lot of it. But, I, but even, the, even so, though, I just think the mood of the country, which includes Georgia, um, and, and more heightened here because of our runoffs and the closeness of the presidential. I just don't think it's going to settle down until a week or two, at least after January 20th. And I don't know. I mean, they really have to be careful with this inauguration. Um, I, I know they were going to change it anyway because of COVID, but uh, we've got to keep our leaders safe. We've got to keep the president-elect safe. I wondered, uh, I've, I've been, have you been to a, a presidential inauguration? Yeah. I, 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 yeah. I, and I wanted to go to this one, but 
I, I went to the uh, uh, I was I was in D worked in D.C. for the second Reagan inauguration. And uh, we were hit by a cold wave and they even had it inside uh, the uh, because the, the 20th fell on a Sunday. So they had it inside and then they had the ceremonial one, you know, like the next day. But uh, uh, and I was thinking about that yesterday because you would think that. Uh, for example, with this inauguration, if you decided that you were going to have it in the Capitol, it would be safer maybe than have it out in the open air, not for COVID reasons, but for uh, violence reasons. But it seems like the inside of the Capitol's maybe not much safer than the outside of the Capitol after what, what took place yesterday. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Elena, let's, let's uh, talk a little bit about how you got started um, first of all, your law career and then how that changed and morphed into a public service career. Um, you, you went to University of Virginia Law School and came out of there and went into, I guess, what I would call corporate litigation. Is that correct? Essentially, yes. Um, mostly corporate defense. I did um, a couple plaintiffs matters at uh, now it's Evershed Sutherland. Um, but the bulk of my practice was actually pl- uh, defend, uh, securities litigation defense. So, okay. yes, you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> all right. And um, tell our listeners a little bit about why, first of all, why did you go into law? And then why did you decide to go into public service? You know, what's really interesting is I, one, of, one of the reasons I decided to go to law school in the first place was my interest in public policy and community building. But it was like sort of a, I knew that, I, I knew that I that was an instigator of my decision to enter law school, but I was still, you know, young and it was still like a, a kind of like a germ thought, you know, a, a germinating thought, I should say. Um, and then, you know, when I went to law school, um, you know, I was fortunate to go to a law school that had a lot of big law firms come recruit on campus. And so it was very, very easy to just sort of interview with them. And it's like the, definitely the path of least resistance mm-hmm. immediately, as well as you're kind of like, all right, I got this law school dead and, you know, okay, I can make a good salary. And, and um, that seems pretty incredible. You know, my dad was a nonprofit executive and my mom kind of did some part-time work, but really mostly stayed at home. So like the idea of like coming out of law school, I'm like making this good salary you're kind of like, whoa. And anyway, so I just ended up kind of, kind of following that path least resistance and went to the firm. And actually I really credit my time at the firm for giving me some of the confidence to launch a political career because the practice group that I was in, we mostly did arbitrations. And what that meant is that I was able to participate in many trials, you know, um, we call them hearings instead of trials, but, you know, I got to do openings. I got to do closings. I got to do some cross-examination and that's kind of unusual for a litigation practice at a big law firm. So that really helped when I decided to, to enter politics and, and, and had to make speeches in front of groups. I felt, I think I felt a little bit more confident than I might have otherwise. Um, But the reality is that the passions and interests that drove me to go to law school in the first place is really what I do what I am still passionate about and that became harder and harder to ignore as much as I enjoyed, you know, my career at the law firm. So it was time to kind of get back in touch with my heart and, and move my career more in the direction that in retrospect, I had sort of picked for myself all along, not necessarily being an elected official. I hadn't really 
I hadn't decided that, that I didn't, didn't decide until that I was going to run until I was um, an aide in 2009 for then Senator David Edelman, who was actually a partner in my law firm. So you see it all kind of comes together. And Stacey Abrams had been a, a, a associate at my law firm as well. And she left like right as I was kind of coming in. Um, but of course, ran while I was there, ran for, for State House and won. And I, I was totally fangirling her the entire time because she's, she's so smart that she still had this sort of like aura of, you know, mystique at, at the firm, you know, folks, Stacey, you know? So, yeah, so really that's it. It was just always... Yeah inside me. And I just took me a while to get back into get back into realizing, all right, here we go. Uh, th that's a great story. And, and we're so glad that you decided to do it and, and make it a reality. Um, talk a little bit about running for office. That's got to be pretty tough. Oh, yeah, it's really tough. I mean, what it requires, and a lot of people don't necessarily understand this. But if you're going to run for office and your goal is to win, then you need to plan and run your campaign with that goal in mind. And what that meant for both of my races is I needed to raise a decent amount of money and campaign nonstop. And so the first time my campaign was actually 18 months long, which is really long. And um, I knocked on doors for six months. Um, and the rest of it, I was doing more like, you know, like, be going to civic association meetings and, and the like and raising money. Um, and the second one was much shorter, which was really much nicer. Um, but again, you know, for that three month of intense campaigning or four, you're gone every night. I had two young kids and I had two babysitters that we just, I hired someone and I was like, you're, I need someone every single night for the next four months. Wow. Yeah, and I had my first baby during my first campaign. So I had to do the same thing then. I didn't have two. I had two baby shows this time because that's how wild they were. Just <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> one was one was like one and the other one was three and it was like a madhouse. So, so are you are you juggling the or are you juggling some law practice now with with serving in the legislature? Yes. Or? So I'm I work some with Scott Holcomb, who actually was um, also at Sutherland. So we worked together for a really long time um, before I knew he was interested in politics because he had run for Secretary of State and didn't didn't get the Democratic nomination, but that was in 2006. And then, you know, not, you know, four, four years later, we both got elected to the state house. So um, he has a firm and uh, with another, the other name partner is another former colleague of ours at Sutherland. And so I helped them out. I, I am not the highest billing um, associate at the firm, but, <laughs> but I mean, I, you know, just this, the job, um, one of the interesting things about the 24 hour news cycle, social media, and everything that's coming our way all the time is that people, especially in my district, which is a very, um, as obviously Robin knows, a very highly educated and engaged constituency, people expect you to be answering emails and being present and weighing in on things all year. And they don't, our, the way our state government is set up, we're paid very little um, and also not given a budget for staff. And so it's, um, it's, it's really 
become much more of a not quite full time, but a significant time um, job, a, you know, a significant time commitment. And, and I, it works out okay for me, but I do think that that's a shame because, uh, because I'm lucky that my husband has a good job, but I do think that's a shame because it, it limits people from serving. And it also limits me from practicing law as much as I would like to. But you know, it's, been, it's been said that the part-time legislators are, are the domain of the, uh, the, the impoverished, the retired, and the ultra-rich. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I know that uh, a lot of people, probably a lot of our listeners, because we focus on civil justice and, you know, how the justice system works. And, and uh, you know, we have these part-time citizen legislators, which I think gives us a lot more insight into, you know, when, when you have to work for a living. But it seems to me that it's become increasingly difficult to, to, to practice law and, yeah. and, and probably practice medicine, run a real estate business, wh whatever it is. But I, I remember uh, uh, Judge Harold Murphy, who's a federal judge who served in the Georgia legislature for about 10 years. He told me, he said, when I was in the legislature in the late 60s and 70s, he said, we started on January, you know, January third, you know, with appropriations meetings and, you know, whatnot. And he said, we were always done by Valentine's Day. And, yeah. oh, uh, and okay. we, we never stopped the clock from running. Right. And uh, he said, uh, I couldn't make a living practicing law and keep it, keep it to do that. It was one of the reasons that he says, told me that he went on the bench, you know, was, was for that reason. But now it seems like you all are going till almost June, uh, you know, in some, in some circumstances. And it also seems that the amount of, uh, I, I will say, uh, non-voting, you know, sitting in the chamber, listening to debate, voting. I'm talking about the time you spend, you know, going because you're on the special committee to look into the Savannah ports or, uh, right. you know, so whatever you know, else is going right. on. And uh, so how, how do you balance all that now? And, you know, is the, is the legislature in session too long because they meddle in too many things or because we're, we're a different state, you know, now and it, and it, well, yeah, and it takes more. Is, you know, I actually think that we, we could get what we actually need to do done more quickly most of the time. And we are messing around with, you know, there are 236 members, the party in charge is going to want to give their, their embattled, you know, people in swing districts, some big bill that they can tout, they're going to want to give their rank and file something they can tout. Um, so that causes us to, to, to pass, you know, in some ways, a lot of stuff that's not like strictly, you know, really necessary at all. Um, so there is something to that. On the other hand, the job just at this point doesn't go away because of, social media and 24 hour news cycle. You know, like we haven't been in session in the last two months, but we've all been inundated. Hundreds of thousands of emails uh, from people, frankly, at this point all over the country and, you know, some foreign, foreign countries too, you know, <laughs> trying to weigh in on the election. So it's just, um, and, and, and like totally checking out of it isn't really an option. And that really doesn't have, and, and you know, and by that, I mean the political cycle um, and so in many ways that that's not a function of being in session. It's a function of, of having even a more obscure local politician role in everything. You know, people feel the need to be, you know, you, like, like, like with the social media stuff, it's almost like branding yourself and self-promotion is 
a part of it. And then just people expect to hear from you or they're asking you questions, you know? Elena, when uh, both Lester and I, when we were president of the state bar, Lester was before me and I came a couple of years later, we both emphasized uh, getting lawyers to run for office. Yeah. Uh, we, we felt like it was very important to have more lawyers who are trained in the drafting of legislation, trained in uh, understanding the consequences of, of a bill, uh, knowing the code, which seems pretty important. Uh, and we emphasize, both of us emphasize, trying to get lawyers to run for office. Do you think that's important in your experience at the legislature? Does it give you a leg up being a lawyer and having that training? What are your thoughts? Yeah, on that? I think it absolutely does, um, Robin. And thank you to both of you for trying to make that a priority of your tenures as, as bar president. I think it's critical for a couple of reasons. First of all, there's just the, the, the basics, which you outline is that when you have some legal training, you are better able to grasp and analyze um, bill proposals in the legalese that, that they're in and also how they fit in with current law and the code. And you can also have more ability to um, sort of take a critical eye at some of what's getting proposed and think about it in the context of the broader law and constitutionality and, and things like that. I think the training really helps with that. And I have found that by and large, most of the lawyer legislators I've served with on both sides of the aisle have a little bit more of a moderate and intellectual approach to what we do than, than others. And I don't mean to demean any other profession, obviously. It is good to have people from all, um, all professions, although I do think having more lawyers is good for those other, those other reasons. But the lawyers just seem, the training seems to help the training and the additional education and the reality that you have to pass the bar. Um, I think it helps provide a quality of insight and analysis that I found to be um, welcome. You know, one of the things that I found out and, and I was bar president, I think before you were in the legislature uh, and uh, I, I'm, I'm, I, I would only amend uh, Robbins trying to get lawyers to run for the legislature uh, comment to say that we tried to get good lawyers <clears throat> to run to the run for the legislature because we had some situations where uh, we had some lawyers that frankly just weren't very good lawyers down there they're not down there anymore and uh, we, we found that the non-lawyers really listened to them because they were a lawyer even though ah, even though even though their their take on something was uh, you know, far outside what most uh, most practicing lawyers, you know, would see if a client had come in and asked them about this. You know, they're kind of putting a political spin on it or, 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 or whatever else. And so uh, the, my question to you then is, <clears throat> do you find still, though, that the fact that you're a lawyer, that you have your colleagues who are non-lawyers coming to you and wanting your take on things yeah. from 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 that standpoint? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, people assume that you have uh, a sort of special power to, you know, figure things out and, and just make sure that everything's above board. And, um, and I do think, yes, there, there is something to that. Talking a little bit, uh, Elena, about it seems like it's more like a year-long job. It never stops. Um, after the presidential election, 
this year. I know that you were called back into the Capitol to uh, go through some hearings where the president's lawyer, Rudolph Giuliani, came in and tried to convince some some state senators to try to undo the election here in Georgia. Um, I'm kind of interested in your thoughts on that and what that was like. Well, it was really such a disappointing charade. Um, if there was anyone on the committee that didn't know better, it was maybe one person, one senator. I do not believe that anyone else or the majority of the Republican caucus felt that you know, there was actually a widespread fraud that made the election invalid. Um, maybe they believe that things could be done better or there's this irregularity here or there, which of course is always gonna be true. Anytime you have humans involved, and of course we, we can improve our election procedures, like no one would argue with that. So, you know, maybe maybe they do did sort of like maybe have in their mind that could there have been something that would rise to 12,000 votes, but the reality is with every lawsuit getting summarily tossed and the Secretary of State has, um, you know, a, a, a not small number of investigators um, they had GBI help out with some things. Um, I actually, I do think that most of them understood that Trump lost, you know, um, I think it was a shock to a lot of them. I think that while they recognized that the state was getting closer, obviously with, uh, Stacey Abrams only losing about 50,000 votes, they still to have it happen, I think was a little bit of a shock. Um, and, and, and I told them at the hearing, uh, looking right at the Republicans, I said that we, really we had, we had just given it more oxygen and it was, it was, we were doing a big disservice to Georgians by airing all this totally unfiltered. That's the thing. Like it wasn't as though it was some hearing to call in people and representatives of the president who are making claims and then try to get to the bottom. No, we specifically did not do that. So it was not at all designed to answer legitimate questions that Georgians may have, whether or not the, the source of the fact that they even have questions in the first place are lies told by the president. They may still have questions. Well, this was not designed to say, this is what they're saying, okay, here's what really happened. It was designed to, I guess, mollify um, the president, um, assist some very eager members in furthering their own political ambitions, and um, it's really a shame that the that this the state senate should 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 it's like all the other Republican enablers like that goes too far. You have just really violated your oath of office, and this was a total charade, and it does real damage. And and sitting there and thinking like oh this doesn't do real damage, it you know anyone that thinks that should hopefully be disabused of that notion by yesterday. But I, but you know, there is there is real harm in attacking a democracy, attacking institutions, and and pretending to yourself that that oh, this is this is this isn't doing any harm. All those so, people should not be in office. So among the uh, institutions, you know, we've talked a little bit about the attack on the Capitol, <clears throat> uh, and so legislators are under fire. But one of the other institutions that's sort of under fire is the courts. And uh, the, uh, you know, and there's always a, a, a little bit of tension. I think it's a good tension between the courts and the legislature and, and, and that type thing. 
Uh, and you mentioned, you know, Stacey Abrams race was about 50,000 votes different. Uh, the Biden-Trump race was 14,000. Last I saw, uh, Warnock's race was maybe in the 40,000, 50,000, and uh, Ossoff was in the 20,000. And so as these races have gotten closer and closer, there's been more and more litigation, you know, and I've been involved in some of the litigation uh, that, that, you know, that we've had this year, uh, you know, even on behalf of judicial candidates or would-be judicial candidates. And so I'm curious as a legislator uh, with, with a law background, how would you evaluate how the courts have done? And I'm, I'm not really just talking about Georgia, I'm talking about the courts you know, everywhere that are here in these election contests, because, you know, they've been 60, 70, you know, different things just on the presidential race. And, you know, we don't, we don't even hear about the ones where, you know, you know, the dog catcher in Iowa, you know, was litigating, you know, because he lost by two votes or, or, or whatever, or legislative races. And, you know, I think in Pennsylvania, for example, uh, you know, a lot of the questions that were raised by the presidential race, like when the ballots come in, you know, it came up in, in uh, state legislative races and they were trying not to seat people uh, earlier this week and, and that type thing. So uh, yeah. what's your take on on how the courts have done? How would you grade the courts generally? <laughs> the thing is, they get such a higher grade than all the elected officials. You know, like I think part of the trouble with people in positions like mine is they don't actually have a direct job to do. Like when you're a judge, you do have a job to do that has that has firm meaning. You yourself are issuing a decision and and under uh, bar rules and your own oath, that does have to be grounded in some, you know, actual, you're going to have to cite something, right? Like you can't just, you know, be out there with, with, with no tethering to any kind of law or facts. And here in the positions that we have, you can be out there totally untethered to law and facts. And when you have no, no actual role in it, no job to do, it's very easy to do that. And so I, um, I was actually really delighted. Like as we went through this, as much as I'm a diehard Democrat, I was happy that, that Raffensperger was a Republican. I was happy that, you know, Trump had these three people on the court just for that minute, right. Just for that minute to say like, all right, this is a right-wing court. Trump appointed a third of it and they're tossing it out. Unfortunately, that does not seem to have, that reality check did not seem to filter down through enough people. I mean, the, the stats, who knows, we need to see, we're gonna need to see more polling, but the stats still were like 72% of Republicans thought the election was, had, had widespread issues. But I give the courts a, you know, if there was any wisdom, justice and moderation, it certainly was from the courts and not the legislative branch. To your point that this sort of charade of um, election fraud, when there's been absolutely no evidence of it, uh, proven time after time after time now, uh, can cause damage and harm. I, I, I understand that because you took a stance to try to say the truth, to say the truth is there is no election fraud, um, that you uh, receive some death threats because of it. Yeah. And what was that like for you and your family? It was just surreal because I didn't do anything different in that hearing than I would have in any hearing since I became a senator. And obviously this was more, much more high profile, but it was fascinating because I tweeted something 
at the very beginning of the hearing that, you know, the ne next time I looked at it had just gone, you know, totally viral in the right wing, right? Like in all these crazies. And then I landed on all these like troll lists where they would just been attacking me. We had to have protection out of like sort of four rotating different law enforcement agencies. Um, and I was really grateful that they were willing to step up. I felt guilty because I'm, you know, it stressed out my husband. You know, I felt guilty about that. Um, not, not like, oh, I, I feel justifiably guilty. Just that you, you think about that. Right. And, um, and I, I, I certainly wouldn't change anything. I mean, there's just no way that I would keep my mouth shut. You, you, you must, as a senator, uh, telling the truth, you must have to have a pretty thick skin. Oh, yeah. I mean, people will, what they do is they try to come after you or they know it'll hurt, you know, and, and a lot of it, there, there was a, a big strain of sexism in a lot of the attacks, you know, and they, they really, you know, they're making fun of your appearance and your, and, 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 and just a lot of vulgar terms that would be directed only at women, a whole lot of that. Um, so yeah, they, they try to find your vulnerabilities and, and really go after them. In fact, they, they, they managed to some um, start uh, emailing my parents, calling my husband's office. And, you know, of course we all just laugh about it. You know, at least my parents, <laughs> my parents and I do, you know, I got this um, ridiculous like Facebook message on Christmas day with full of expletives and, you know, just a whole lot of your treason, your a traitor um, and letters that you open, you know, anonymous letters that have all this stuff, but you just have to kind of laugh about it because it's so ridiculous. Yeah. And I mean, there, again, like it's hard to know what, what these folks actually believe, but it did appear that there was, that there was this like, you know, big group of people that like actually had some belief that I was going to go to jail and that I had, committed treason and that really came up more not so much for my role in the hearing but the you know the suggestion in cobbling together stills of two women doing their job they work for Allegheny County Pennsylvania so they were up there counting ballots um after the the presidential in November and then they were like oh here's Senator Perrin and Senator Jordan and then that led to a a much higher level of involvement on the uh attacks, the death threats, and the, the accusations of treason. You're speaking of, you're speaking of check right away, but none of those people ever see that and they probably wouldn't care anyway. You're mentioning uh, Senator Jen Jordan. Yes. Is that right? Okay. So uh, I, I ask you to sort of evaluate, uh, evaluate the, uh, the courts and sort of what their performance had been in all this. And uh, I remember, you know, vividly remember uh, watching in 2000 the, uh, the, the, the litigation in Florida over the presidential recount. You had, you know, uh, uh, David Boys and Ted Olson, who really, you know, became very good friends, even though they were on opposite sides of that, that litigation. And, and when I was bar president, they, they chaired a committee together for the ABA, and I had the privilege of appearing in front of them. And they were going out to dinner afterwards. You know, there was a lot of sort of camaraderie there. Um, and so I've always sort of admired lawyers, the law, you know, because I'm, I'm an advocate more than I'm, I'm a lot better lawyer than I am a politician or have no desire to be a judge. 
Uh, but how would you grade the lawyers in this uh, th this period, for example, like the, the 2000 election, I, I'd give them all A's, you know, Right. but, uh, but it seems like there's been uh, maybe a little difference in quality. I'm, I'm curious. I'm, I'm not trying to put, I'm not trying to ask a leading question. Like I've got you on the witness stand. How, how would you grade the lawyers that have been involved in some of the litigation over the presidential election uh, and the elections in general this year? The it's been discussed how the teams on the Bush, on Bush v. Gore conducted themselves strikingly differently than the lawyers who ensnared themselves in um, the really on the Trump, the president's side. Um, I think that many of them, not all, but many of them are doing a, a disservice to the good name of lawyers and frankly have probably violated some of their own oaths and bar rules now, of course, some of the time they would be saying, or someone was saying, Trump or Giuliani or someone, this is, you know, we're proving the fraud. And then the filing would not actually allege fraud, right? So they were kind of trying to be careful in not violating bar rules. Um, and then the public messaging was just completely different. But um, it was, it's been, you know, quite obvious for quite a while that there was no there there. And so when the big firms started to pull out as it dragged on, most of the credible lawyers were out of there. That's, that's one of the things I was going to ask you is that, you know, as you know, there's, there's probably sort of a, uh, a group of uh, usual suspect democratic lawyers and usual suspect Republican lawyers. And, uh, 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 and, and most of us get along, you know, with one another and everything else. And, one of the things that uh, uh, struck me was the absence of uh, of certain lawyers that you would expect to see exactly. in in serious litigation. Did that is that something that popped out to you? Oh as yeah, well? oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. As it should as it should have been, as it should have been. The, the problem though is that we understand that most Americans that don't follow the political jurisprudence as closely or know the big names. You know, I guess they're out there thinking that Linwood, I mean, he has a resume, right? So the mere fact, yes, I understood that credible lawyers were not working on these matters, but the average person doesn't. Although I do think, I, I think I heard or was told that uh, Linwood has been banned from uh, Twitter and maybe some other platforms now, but really he should, he should not be able to maintain a, a bar license I don't know if anyone's filed complaints or if anyone's going well, to. That, that's another thing Robin and I think probably know a lot about is if you've ever been president of the state bar, yeah. uh, any misbehaving lawyer, uh, people, people think you have that position for life and they think you have some inside, you know, input into who gets disbarred and who doesn't. And you really, you really don't. Uh, but, you know, uh, you, you about once a week, uh, if you've ever been president of the state bar, you get an email that says, I saw this lawyer jaywalking the other day, you know, are y'all going to, are y'all going to disbar him, you know, someplace and, and uh, you have to kind of have to kind of deal with that. Well, I, I'll say uh, I was, I don't know this person, Ryan Germany, yeah. the, the secretary of state's lawyer, young guy, looked him mm -hmm. up. He's only practiced for about four or five years. I don't know him, but I'm going to give him kudos hats off to Ryan Germany 
for saying standing up to the president of the United States and saying, no, sir, there is no evidence of that. that I think that took some moral courage. Oh, it, did, it, did, it did some great job. You know, I got and and I sued them this year. You know, I sued the secretary of state. You know, Ryan was involved. I don't I can't remember. We, we didn't sue him personally, but I, I just thought he did, you know, an outstanding job of doing it. There's a great story that Griffin Bell has about telling President Carter when Griffin Bell was attorney general that he couldn't do something he wanted to do. Uh, and he says it's hard, kind of hard to tell the president of the United States that. And I, I think uh, if it's hard for somebody uh, who had been uh, a Fifth Circuit judge and was the attorney general for, for, for a young lawyer that's working in the secretary of state's office, you know, my, my hat's off to him. You know? Yeah, I thought that was a proud moment for lawyers. Um, Elena, let's talk a little bit about the upcoming session. Um, I'd like to hear from you, and I'm sure our listeners are interested in what's on the horizon, what what sort of legislation do you see bubbling up or what are you going to be pushing uh, to have passed this year? What, 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 give us some insight on that if you, if you don't mind. Well, first of all, the start of the session is uh, overshadowed by the pandemic. So right now there is some question about how the calendar will unfold and whether we'll need to take some recess days we're definitely going in on Monday, um, the 11th, but then if we need to take recess days to let numbers come back down, I mean, it would be smart. We've got a lot of elderly legislators and now that people over 65 can get inoculated, that would actually probably be a good idea before we, we came back in. Um, but that may not happen and we may, we may forge ahead. The other, of course, big impact of the pandemic is on the budget. Things aren't quite as, as bad as we thought they might be last uh, spring, but they're, they're still rough and there are many industries that still are suffering greatly. And then that means people out of work. And it's, it, you know, with Washington having acted um, with the cash act that that will help. And now, especially now that the Democrats will have the Senate, hopefully that we can get an, another relief package to kind of get us through just these last number of months until we have the broad swath inoculated and businesses can get back um, going, especially with tourism and hospitality and entertainment and, you know, and other things that have been hit really, really hard. Um, so, th so, so the budget is definitely a significant issue. I mean, the other hugely significant issue is how far are my Republican colleagues going to go to try to undermine the, the ability of Georgians to vote? in a convenient um, and efficient way. And- um, Such as taking away uh, no excuse absentee ballot. Right. So taking away the ability to vote absentee without an excuse mm -hmm. um, is something that they are, that even the Secretary of State has has backed. I've, now, heard, that, I, I've heard that being proposed already. Oh, it is, yeah. And, which, which I voted absentee ballot in every election this year, this 2020, and I loved it. Me too. And see, and I think they are afraid that because so many people tried it, that just never had before because they just were used to voting in person and liked it and saw how easy it was that um, then more people will do it. But, th but the reality is the whole thing is, is, is just as silly because it's like Republicans put it in the way it is in 2005 because they had more people voting absentee at that point. And okay, so they're mad that in one election cycle, more Democrats voted that way. Well, the president was telling Republicans not to, 
and deriding it. This is not something that that can't be changed. It's not like the, the playing field on absentee voting can't be leveled. I mean, to, you know, to try to change the law because of this circumstance is silly. Not, you know, there, there are still tens of thousands of Republicans who voted absentee, even if it was majority Democrats. Um, and, and frankly, it was a complete lifeline during the pandemic. If we had had to have everybody vote in person with all the social distancing and sanitation requirements, the, you know, it, the June primary was already a complete meltdown with um, even with a significant number of people voting absentee. So um, I think to remove the ability of Georgians to do that, um, first of all, it's just obviously blatant voter suppression. But even aside from that, it's like, you, you know, we just saw how necessary it was to have the ability to have something like that in the law because of unforeseen circumstances. But just, you know, more, um, more to the point, this whole idea of we told lies that there was fraud, so now we have to suppress the vote to fix the made up fraud is completely unacceptable. So, so let me ask you this, because I, and I've, I've, I've wondered if you, uh, you know, political parties, both, both sides and different legislators, legislatures throughout the state, you know, engage in gerrymandering where you go and try to draw a district that's going to get more of your folks elected than the other side. And so that's, that's pretty straightforward. I mean, you know, where, uh, you can look at, at re voter registration in some states or primary voting, you know, in states like Georgia, you know, which primary they're running in, that kind of thing. And you can kind of, uh, 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 you know, I'll say rig the game, you know, a little bit mm -hmm. in your side's favor, whether it's Democrat or Republican. When you're talking about early voting or absentee voting, like Robin uh, asked you about, uh, you really don't know who that vote, who cast that vote. And, you know, it's, uh, it, to my mind, it would be sort of foolish to think that it's all uniform. But is there any real data that shows that, oh, the early vote, you know, you know, is, uh, you know, if we, if we do away with, for example, uh, no excuse uh, absentee voting, that it's going to help one side or the other. I think the Republicans in Georgia believe at this point that more people voting is bad for them, which is really not true. You know, I mean, the turnout actually in the presidential was, was really high, which actually helped them. So you can see that the drop off and turnout hurt them more than Democrats, uh, regardless of method in the, in the runoffs. Um, but I mean, at the core, the, the situation is that to win an election, you need to be able to win over a majority of the citizens. That is what you have to do. You have to put forward ideas and ideals that attract people to your side to create a governing majority and they want to vote for you. And you can sit here and try to mess around with, well, we're not going to let people vote this way and that way, but none of, or you can gerrymander, you know? None of it will stave off what is coming your way if you can't convince a majority of citizens that, that they want your team in power. And right now, that's the problem that the Republicans have. So, okay, you're going to try to win a few, another cycle by shaving off 20,000 to 50,000 people and make it harder for them to vote? Well, what are you going to do two years after that? I mean, the whole thing just makes no sense. Um, but I'm glad you brought up redistricting because we obviously are going to be in a redistricting year. One of my big initiatives that I've had over the years is to move away from the legislature drawing the districts, the, you know, proverbial fox in the hen house, people who are totally 
cannot divorce themselves from their own self-interest draw and also political power um, drawing the districts and, and have an independent commission do it. Um, so I'll be, I'll be pursuing that again this year. And it'll be interesting to see whether Democrats in Washington do move forward with some of the um, election reforms that they propose that the House has passed and that has been stalled in the Senate for years, right? Because those would be federal laws impacting everyone's election. And I certainly expect that the Republicans would squawk, but I hope they do something. Yeah, yeah. Can you can you address that in a little more depth there? Because we've just heard, uh, you know, as as we've watched these cases, that each you know each state has their own election system, and so uh, but there are some federal laws that deal with that as well. And can you can you kind of I know that's a uh, a project of yours and, you know, something that you're, can you explain sort of what the interplay is for our listeners a little bit? For independent redistricting commissions? No, no well, not for independent, re- but, but, but the interplay between federal law and state law. Oh, yeah. Right. So there are certain, um, right. I mean, it is, it is t- in, in, in a, in a, to a large extent, it is locally run by the states and then even down to the county level who have the ability to set certain things, but some things of course are in state law. Like, all right, this is how many early voting days we have. Right now, for example, DeKalb County cannot have early voting, even if it would like to the weekend before the election, they cut it up, state law cuts it off. So um, we do have some uniformity. And if, it, and if something were done at the federal level, then we would have additional uniformity all over you know, the country. And so, I mean, obviously you have to be careful not to completely overreach with that, but it, there's no doubt that when um, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act was struck down by the Supreme Court, that a lot of states had the ability and did for the first time pass all kinds of restrictive voter ID laws and other things to try to make it harder for folks that they suspect are not on their team to um, to vote. And so I do think the Democrats in Washington should be looking at um, the right to vote, to vote is a sacred right. So it should not be that it is that much easier to disenfranchise someone in X state, you know, than, than, than another state. And so I, I, I would welcome a little bit more uh, uniformity there. And I really think that the independent commissions is a total no brainer. How, how many states have independent commissions? I think um, California does. Well, so there are, oh gosh, how many states are there are a variety of states that have some form of it's not just the legislature apolitical or sort allegedly apolitical but yes um so there's a larger number of the those that have a reform than than have just independent uh, just the independent commission group but um it's you know a number of them passed this last year it's probably almost up to 20. You've talked a little bit of obviously we're still in the middle of a pandemic and you mentioned inoculating uh, older Georgians, 65 and older, I think are, are up next. Um, and, and that might open up the Capitol a little bit better. Will the legislature have any involvement on getting out vaccines to COVID-19 or have any anything to do with that? That's a great question. Um, I don't I have not heard of any law that we need to tweak to make it more feasible or efficient, but I wouldn't be shocked if there was. Um, so far, I think the county boards of health are point of contact with the governor's office and um, DPH and are handling it. So um, I, I'm, I'm sure we'll have 
have something, but I think it's going to be something relatively unsexy. Any, any other topic coming up that you foresee yeah, I mean, in the session? So, you know, it's like so hard to predict everything with the chaos and the pandemic um, that we're going to be seeing. One other very interesting, um, you know, hopefully bipartisan effort could arise out of the Ahmaud Arbery murder, um, which would be um, reforming or slash ending, but we may need to leave a little bit of room, the uh, citizen's arrest law that, that enabled the um, perpetrators to feel like they should, or that they were within the legal rights to, you know, chase Mr. Arbery down while he was jogging. So that, you know, Chuck Abstration, um, the chairman of judiciary non-civil in the house led some, some study committees. I would also love to see, and I'm sure someone will file um, the reform to the standard ground laws, but that's a, that's a heavier, certainly a, um, a heavier lift. Um, I expect that we'll see discussion again on expanding Medicaid. Um, it may still be a discussion that's more limited to maternal mortality, um, just given the budgetary implications as well as you know lingering resistance to Obamacare um, out of the Republicans. Um, we also recently got these Kemp proposed waivers that really made no sense from a financial or healthcare or policy perspective approved by the Trump, um, Trump uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. So I, I'm actually curious to see whether the Biden administration weighs in on that or revokes it um, because there's also, you know, some work requirements and other things that from a policy perspective just, you know, really weren't very good ideas. But it was at least some willingness on behalf of the governor and the Republicans to take these baby steps toward covering more Georgians. So. Well, we've uh, been going for about an hour now, and I know you've got things to get back to, and we appreciate your time. Um, one of the things, Lester, do you have anything else that you wanted to cover with Senator Parent? I don't, I, don't, I don't think so. Well, I, actually, I do. I, I, I was, I was thinking you were going to ask it, Robin. Well, you, you know, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Well, you've, a, you've asked about the, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, one of the things, uh, Robin always for our listeners, Robin always does a nice script, and I never follow the script, you know. But I do read it, Robin, and I'd read, okay. you know, what's 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 the highlight of your career, uh, uh, at, you know, as a lawyer and as a legislator, and what. Uh, advice would you have for young lawyers starting out? And I, I, I really like that question. And I, uh, and it's Robin's question. It's not my question. So I'd like, uh, I'd like to put her on the spot about that before you okay. put her on the spot about philosophical and ethereal okay. things such as justice. Yeah, that is, you know, it really is interesting being in the minority. You don't have the ability to like be the sponsor of this life-changing bill for Georgians that, you know, you really want to tout. But I was very excited that I um, was the sponsor of legislation that actually, the more headlines I see, the more impact I think it's going to have. Um, it gives some more teeth in the law and additional penalties to individuals who essentially uh, 
hit pedestrians or bikers or, or other uh, folks on scooters or other forms of transportation and then just flee the scene of the accident. And, you know, the number of cases that you see where that law um, can be invoked is actually really pretty striking. Um, so I was really proud because there was this family, uh, the law was named CJ's law. And this poor um, young guy, like I think he was 18, he was just walking in Cobb County and got hit. And the guy just kept on going and he left him for dead in the middle of the road. And then subsequent cars hit him and they eventually stopped, but he didn't live. And his family was tireless in trying to pursue some sort of justice for him. Um, and so when we did, got to do the signing ceremony with Governor Kemp and have his mom and his cousin come, um, that felt really good because it felt like I'd really done something for this, this family. So that was really great. And let's see, you know, I mean, advice for lawyers starting out, you know, there's so much that's coming at you all the time. I think you really have to try to be um, diligent and organized and prioritize. I think prioritization is something that's um, really critical in today's career environment. And um, trying to just sort of be true to yourself in figuring out how can I make a difference and where's my heart really at? The more people that, that, are, that are attorneys and can pursue that so that they really have this you know, love of the law and um, the type of practice that really fulfills them. I think um, it is, is really good for, for the profession and for our society, frankly. Sounds great, Elena. I totally agree. Um, one question that we end our program with for every guest uh, is how do you define justice or what is your notion or understanding of what justice means? Well, when I think about justice, um, I think what it means is something that we, we say we have in our society and that we give lip service to and kind of strive to, but that we really fail at quite often. And, and the more you know reforms we could have that would get us closer to equal justice under the law, the better. I mean, there's the criminal sense, um, you know, as far as justice where, you know, in a perfect society, people would be treated equally, um, no matter their background, economic status, or race. And we know that that's clearly not uh, the case. Um, and then, you know, really when you would have justice, you would have a level playing field, not just in the criminal side, but also on the civil side. And we, and we know that that too is um, not always the case, but that would be true justice if you could you know, if it were easy to take on a big corporation where those that have a lot of money can't sort of get their way by default as much as they do simply because they can afford to out litigate someone or just fight so that, you know, an individual plaintiff is worn down. That would be a system that enabled true level playing field equal justice for, for Americans, both on the criminal and civil side. 
And I think we just have to be mindful of that and continue to strive for that to be a reality. Um, it's hard to achieve a totally colorblind society where the wealthy aren't more powerful. I don't know if there's ever been any uh, country in the world that has achieved that. But we should at least be mindful of the fact that justice, the, the term justice doesn't apply equally to all and incorporate that in the way we think. Well, thank you, Senator Elena Parent. It's been wonderful spending time with you today. Good luck in the 2021 session coming up. And just to remind our listeners, we've been talking with Senator Elena Parent, Senator for the 42nd District of Georgia. And you can read more about her and find her newsletter to constituents called the Parent Press at elenaparent.com. Thanks again, Senator Parent. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. All right, Lester, uh, this is the time when we bring our listeners one law-related item that has occurred in the recent week or, or so, um, and I, I, I'm going to guess you're prepared. I am prepared for that. I am prepared. I and am I'll, prepared. I'll, I'll swing it over to you and let you talk. And, and, you know, but you didn't ask me, you say I shoot from the hip. You didn't ask me how long I've been prepared. You know, it may have been, uh, it may <laughs> have been minutes just, ago. Uh, that's right. Yeah, no. So, uh, I, you're, I wanna, you're ready when reached. I'm ready as, as when reached. That's it. That's right. That's, that's, uh, that's one of the uh, lawyer's most enduring lies is when the judge, <laughs> when, when will you be ready? I'll be ready when we get reached judge, you know? So, uh, I'm taking mine from the, uh, January 6th, uh, uh, 2021 W A L B and Albany, uh, news, uh, news webpage. And, uh, what it says is jury trials for February in Doherty County have been canceled. According to County officials, the cancellation comes after the Georgia Supreme court chief justice, Harold Melton issued a statewide judicial emergency order, suspending all jury trials in Georgia indefinitely, uh, Doherty County officials said in a release. So I'm telling you about the local, uh, TV station there that has reported this, uh, but it's really a statewide thing. And uh, I, I sort of purposefully picked the Albany TV uh, news there to report this because uh, it's, a, it, it's a problem in every county. All 159 counties of Georgia is how do we get back uh, to having, uh, having jury trials and not just jury trials in criminal cases, but jury trials in civil cases. And uh, I am hopeful that we will be able to come up with some things. I can't remember if we've talked about this on our podcast before, but in a lot of places, like in Scotland, for example, at Scotland, criminal juries, I think, have 15 people on them, not 12 or six, like we do in misdemeanor juries. But they're going into uh, uh, cineplexes and theaters and places like that to try to have, uh, try to have jury trials. And I talked to my uh, good friend, Judge David Smith, who just retired from the Cherokee Judicial Circuit. And he says that in Calhoun, Georgia, they have a little theater up there and he's going to be appearing live on stage uh, to try to have court uh, there in the theater. And uh, he said, somebody asked him, can we do a jury trial in there? And he says, yeah, I think we could do that. 
So I am telling you, we need to get back to jury trials. I hate to hear this. I don't want to put that. I'm not, I'm not for summoning people down to put them in jeopardy for their health, but we're going to have to be innovative and we're going to have to do that some different ways. And uh, I, I certainly hope that we will work and strive towards uh, finding those so that in all 159 counties, we can uh, get back to putting uh, 12 jurors in the box and getting cases decided and getting some semblance of justice for, for those who uh, need the courts. Talking about having a jury trial in a theater reminded me of our mutual good friend, Justice John Ellington, back when he was a trial judge a, a long, long time ago. He talks about having tried cases in the local theater way before there was ever a pandemic or COVID or anything. He would have a jury in a in a um, a theater there in because he rode the circuit and and I don't remember what town it was, but he talks about having jury selection in a theater. So we could rely on Justice John Ellington to give us some insight on how to do that. Well, Justice, you know, I, he's one of my dear friends, and I always get the one up on him, or I try to at least, mm -hmm. even if I don't. And uh, I actually tried a case in a parking lot one time. Uh, <laughs> it was a workers' comp case. It was not. It was a bench trial, so it wasn't a jury trial. But uh, they were. We were supposed to be in a civic center, and they were buffing the floors. And the judge said, "Get those tables. Let's go outside." So we spent uh, the better part of a day in the parking lot trying our case. And uh, I went home with a sunburn. So maybe when the weather gets better, we can, we can look for some parking lots. Maybe we'll utilize that parking deck down at the state bar headquarters. That would be a good use for it. Uh, my item is going back to this uh, election issue that we've been enduring uh, here in Georgia and everywhere, but... Georgia was the focus because of the two Senate runoff elections, which, by the way, we should mention uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock, an African-American elected U.S. Senator from Georgia. John Ossoff, a Jew elected U.S. Senator from Georgia. Uh, I'm so proud of my state for bringing that diversity uh, to the Senate. And uh, to me, things are looking up. Um, but I want to tell our listeners about um, what you and I did to support and defend the rule of law uh, and our democracy. We are aware that the president had a, an hour-long, it's now infamous, telephone call with our Georgia Secretary of State, Brian Raffensperger. And we mentioned earlier that his attorney was on the call with him, Ryan Germany, in which the president essentially... Um, asked our Secretary of State to undo the election results um, because the President-elect Biden won the state of Georgia. And you and I uh, agreed it was time that we spoke out. We couldn't remain silent any longer. We had had enough where a President of the United States was attempting to um, threaten our Secretary of State to do something that we felt was illegal. And you and I wrote a joint letter to both the United States attorney at that time, B.J. Peck, and the new Fulton County District Attorney, Fonnie Willis. Um, and I'm not going to- I think we got the district attorney on her first day on the job, <laughs> and we got B.J. Peck on his last day on the job, by the way. I, I didn't mean to- Yeah, that's up, a but. good one. Uh, I've had friends tell me maybe our letter made B.J. Peck resign, and I'm- uh, <laughs> 
doubtful of that. I don't think but, that uh, I don't yeah. think that happened at all. Um, but I wanted to read our listeners a little bit of our our letters, um, which are on social media. It was picked up by several news outlets, put on Twitter and that sort of thing. But just to read a little bit, um, this is the letter to the United States Attorney B.J. Pack. Uh, Dear United States Attorney Pack, we are past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia. Like you, we have taken a solemn oath to uphold the laws of the state of Georgia and the constitutions of the United States and of the state of Georgia. We believe it is our duty, given these oaths, to speak out when we see blatant, obvious efforts to undermine the rule of law and outright violations of the law, especially when such is done by our elected officials. And then we mentioned that infamous telephone call from the president to Secretary of State Raffensperger that we believe that that call may have violated federal election law. And we finished the letter with this. We urge you to investigate this behavior as it appears to be a violation of federal law. We cannot stay silent in the face of this conduct when it appears to be a violation of the laws of the United States and unquestionably attempts to undermine the rule of law to which we have dedicated our professional lives. Signed, Lester, S. Lester Tate III and Robin Fraser Clark. And um, I'm proud of that, Lester. Uh, I'm honored that you, uh, you that, to have joined you in, uh, in doing that. And uh, I think as I was listening to you, to you read it, you know, one of the things that struck me is, um, I, and, and I started to try to count and I really couldn't get how many times I've taken an oath to the Constitution. You know, I know I did it as a U.S. Senate employee, U.S. House employee. I did it when I got admitted to the bar and you have to do it uh, to get admitted to just about every court. Yeah. And sometimes I think we do it so much that we forget that really means something. And one of the things that it means is that regardless of whether you're the poorest of poor uh, and the most outcast of outcast, or you're the president of the United States, in our country, the law applies equally to everybody. Absolutely. And um, I'm proud of what we've done and I hope an investigation occurs. Um, and I'm proud that we are standing up for the rule of law, uh, which we have both sworn to do. Um, and we will look forward to what happens next, I guess. Well, a great show today. I've enjoyed great it. Great show, great show. And thank you, Senator Parent. We're looking forward to a great session. Uh, and I guess until then, Lester, we'll, we'll see, you. see you in see court. You in court. Thank you for listening to See You in Court, brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, cuincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to See you in court podcast at gmail.com. The producer of this podcast is Raz Misher. We thank Noreen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and the Georgia Tech students who help bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Fraser-Clark and Lester Tate, until our next episode, we'll see you in court.